There are times when we first experience something that we uh, that we're afraid of, or that brings fear into our hearts. That that are that, that actually plays out, and it's not the reality. It's not the thing that we thought it was. Right? I can think back uh, as a as a young boy. Uh, growing up, dad taking me deer hunting, and then getting to that age, you know, seven, eight, nine, nine years old, where dad puts me in a box stand by myself, and uh, that, that's, it, you go in before dark, and the sun is starting to rise, and as it does, it creates shadows off of the tree branches and tree limbs into the shooting lane that you're in, and your imagination as a, as a small child, or maybe even an adult, you know, if we had a little bit of confession time, it still does the same thing for me as an adult. Uh, it begins to look like different. I mean, you, you can make that tree branch, if you look at it long enough, it, it kind of looks like a rhinoceros or some kind of monster that's coming after you. And as a small kid, that was terrifying. I can, I can remember a couple occasions being so afraid that I, I wanted to head back to the truck and just wait on Dad to finish, uh, to finish hunting himself, and, and I'd meet him back at the truck. Uh, we were we were in an adoption uh, meeting all day Friday, and uh, the the lady that was leading the, the the time together, the talk, she talked about kids and having those monsters under your bed, right? You know, you can be convinced that that's that's a reality as a kid, and she talked about having monster spray, and you could just go spray, and the the, the fears would be gone. And uh, but but the the things that that we're afraid of often aren't reality. They're not the thing that that they, that really um, they think that we think they might be. And I think this morning in the text we have the same thing going on with Israel as we start a new book, as we stud, study Joshua together. Um, you read in verses one and two. Just just immediately we launch into a new book, and you see verse one after the death of Moses. Then verse two, you see it again. My servant Moses is dead. And what a way to start a book, right? What a way to start a, a sermon series, a new series that we'll be in for several weeks uh, with, with death in, in the first two verses. Um, but it's significant, and we must see why. Um, Pastor Stephen preached through, when he was here, Leviticus and Numbers, and then I preached through Deuteronomy. And so as we walked through those uh, books leading up to this one in the Old Testament, there's been one giant human figure that's kind of dominated every single page of the Old Testament to this point, and that's Moses. For the last 40 years, he's been this constant factor, this constant leader for Israel. He's been the deliverer for Israel. He's been the one that led them out of Egyptian slavery. He's been the one that was the mediator between God's people and God himself as he dwelt with God and, and, and came before the people on behalf of God. He's the man that, that spoke with God face to face, the text says. In, in Exodus 33, 11, it says, As a man speaks to his friend. That's the sort of relationship that Moses had with God. And so you can imagine how uh, hearing these words, the servant of God, Moses, is dead, must have brought fear into their lives. It, it, was, it, was, it was unimaginable that they would be going through life without this leader. Everyone in this generation had only known Moses to be their leader. This was probably devastating. But Moses, my servant, is dead. It's the blunt beginning of this book. And life, as it always does, must go on. They can't just continue in that sorrow. And so the, the obvious question, I think, for us as we begin to, 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 to venture into this book is then what comes next? Who is this word of Moses' death and what's next? The challenge, the mission that they're going to be given? Who is that given to? And as you've already heard in the introduction video, that person is Joshua, whom the book is named after. Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua is no, by no means a young man at this point in his life, um, but his life's journey, his life's work is about to open up and unfold before him 
at this point in his life. And it's not an unexpected journey. It's not an unexpected job or mission that Joshua has. In fact, this race is a race that Joshua has known for some time that he would run. He served the Lord faithfully under Moses. He's been faithful to lead the people under Moses' command. All the way back to Exodus where we first meet Joshua, uh, he's been a faithful man. He's been training for this leadership. He's been courageous. Think about the book of Numbers where he's one of the 12 spies that are sent into the land to see the land and come back with a report as to whether it's even feasible, whether we can do this. And 10 spies come back and they say, no, we can't. There are giants there. We can't take them. Joshua's faithful. He believes the Lord. He believes the Lord can do it. And uh, we see his faithfulness there. And all of this faithfulness comes to a head as it's his turn to now pick up the mantle of leadership and lead God's people into this land of promise that God's been telling them for uh, generations that they would receive. The waiting's ended. It's, it's over. It's time to possess. It's time to, in reality, go and possess that thing that the Lord has promised all the way back to Abraham in the land of Ur, all the way back to Genesis, where God has, has brought Abraham out of the land of Ur, out of the Ur of Chaldeans, and then uh, he's brought them through slavery in Egypt, and he's brought them out of captivity. He's allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but he's brought them out of that too. He didn't kill them off. And all of this has been centuries of God fulfilling his promise, and it's about to be fulfilled. This oft-repeated promise of, of land and people, Joshua is the one that will get to lead Israel into it. What an incredible moment in the life of Israel. But if it were that easy, just cross the river Jordan and establish yourself in this land of promise, then there would be no need for the book of Joshua and we could just pray and go home. Some of you are thinking that might not be such a bad idea. I'm kind of getting sleepy and a little hungry. But it's not that easy. And what we see is that God commands, go into the land. And God's promise, I have given you this land. Both of these, his command and his promise, fall under his sovereignty. We see that in that his, his promise is expressed in his will. I've given this to you. It's my desire. This land is for you. I want to bless you with a land. But his command is achieved by his irresistible power. It's not Israel's strength that they'll receive this land. But at a human level, this is what we see fleshed out in the book of Joshua. How do we balance the command of God and the promises of God? As his people, how do we live in those? And what we see is this. And listen closely because I think this applies for us today, church. When the people of God believe the promises of God and obey the commands of God, they enter into and enjoy fellowship with God at the deepest relational level. I'm going to say that again because that's a mouthful. When the people of God, Israel here in our text, us today, when the people of God believe the promises of God and obey the commands of God, they enter into and enjoy fellowship with God at the deepest possible relational level. And so... I think we see this correlation. When, when we uh, fail to obey God, when we take our eyes off of God, it's because we actually don't believe his promises. And then, in, in, in the same way, and it goes hand in hand, uh, when, when, when we are faithful, uh, when we, we have faith in God's promises, when we trust what God has said, we trust his word, it leads to obedience. And disobedience is a sign that we uh, are rooted in distrust. We'll work, see this worked out throughout the book of Joshua week after week as the people of God are faced with decisions, faced with battles, faced with miracles. Are they going to believe the promises of God and obey the commands of God? 
And though the book of Joshua ends well, it's a pretty positive book. If you, if you read through it, which I'd encourage you to do as we're studying through it week by week, go ahead and read through it. In the next few days, just take some time and read through the book of Joshua. And what you'll see is that it ends pretty well. It's a pretty positive book. Joshua's portrayed as a faithful leader. He's a great leader and, 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 and seems to be following the Lord. They seem to inherit this land that God's been telling them for quite some time that they would receive. They inherit this land of promise. Yet there's this lingering question that I think we have to deal with as we jump into this book. Is Joshua still leading? The fact that he was a faithful man and he led Israel and they did receive these blessings, is he still alive? Is he still commanding God's people in a land of promise? No, he's not. So that leads to our first point. And there are four this morning. Four points. The first one, we, the church today, we, Poplar Spring Baptist Church and Christians in the New Testament, are a people with a living leader. A people with a living leader. Here's the thing, church. The book begins after the death of Moses, verse 1. But we could just as easily read this morning after the death of Joshua. Because he was not the ultimate. He was not the final leader. There are many similarities between Joshua and Jesus. And we'll point these out as we go along the way. One of them is that they share the same name. Uh, Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, it means Yahweh is our salvation. And so there's some intentional comparisons that, that the writer gives to us and that we'll cross as we get to and that we'll, we'll bring out in the text. They share many similarities, but what we ultimately see is that Joshua was a type of Christ. He was just an image. He was just a picture pointing to one that would come. He was fulfilling a temporary role that was pointing us to a greater one who would come and supersede everything that he was able to do. We know this to be the case because he's not alive today. He's not still leading. He ultimately could not cash in and do everything that he needed to do as the leader of Israel, as the leader of God's people. And so throughout the book of Joshua, we'll ask this almost every week. How does the church fit in this today? How does the church fit into this story from the Old Testament about a people crossing a river and going and conquering a land? How does that, how is that applicable for us as the church today? The first two verses could read like this, church family. After the death of Joshua, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Jesus, the son of God, Joshua, my servant, is dead. Therefore, go over this Jordan, you and all my people, into the eternal land that I'm giving to them, to the people of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we change scripture or add to it or rewrite scripture. I'm trying to make the point, though, that no matter how incredible Moses was, no matter how he led them for, for generations, led them faithfully, no matter how uh, faithful Joshua will prove to be as we study through this book, he will ultimately fail, as did Moses. They're buried in the ground somewhere. Jesus is the true and better Moses, and Jesus is the true and better Joshua. He is the one who will ultimately lead and finally uh, bring his people into a promised land with no failure, no more disobedience, no more distrust. No more sin, no more suffering, no more problems or pain. So church today, we serve a living leader. We serve one who has accomplished everything we needed. He's the mediator between God and God's people that Joshua could not be. He is the sinless Savior that Joshua could not be, no matter how good his example was. He's the one who conquered death where Joshua could not. And he'll lead us into a promised forever home where Joshua could not. We are a people serving a living leader. Number two. <clears throat> Number two. We're a people with a mission. We're a people with a mission. When we think about leadership transitions in our, in our world, 
whether uh, in president uh, transitioning into uh, the, the Oval Office or whether, you know, uh, a CEO transitioning into the company, uh, conventional wisdom would tell us that the new leader should take some, take some time to settle in, just kind of ease in, take some time to familiarize yourself with the situations in play, take some time to weigh the options before launching into any decisions, maybe, uh, maybe calculate moves before making decisive action. And that's, that's furthered when it's, a, when it's a, a previous leader that was loved and revered, honored like Moses was. Or when the future is unsure or problematic or you know it's going to be tense and difficult. New leadership should just kind of be patient and, and lead slowly with change. Joshua was offered no such luxury. God doesn't say to, to Joshua, hey, my, mo, uh, my servant Moses is dead. Take some time to settle in, and after a couple years, we'll debrief, we'll have a chat, uh, maybe in a few months, and see how things are going. Just kind of win the confidence of the people at first, and gradually don't take on anything, anything too demanding just yet. On the contrary, God starts his command. The mission for Joshua in verse 2. You see it in your text. Look at your Bibles. Now, therefore, <laughs> Moses is dead. Now, therefore, go over this Jordan, you and all my people. Make haste, Joshua. God is ready. He's ready to fulfill his promises to his people. There have been generations, centuries since that original promise to Abraham back in Genesis. And God is like, I'm ready to give it to you. I want to bless you. The time has come. I want to give you this land. But you can imagine in that moment how that must have struck fear into Joshua's heart. He's the guy, right? All these other leaders have failed. Abraham is dead. Moses is dead. And now he's the guy. He, there's a lot of shoes to fill here. He's the guy that's going to lead the people into the land. And imagine how that must have struck fear in his heart. One summer night, uh, there was a, a, a severe thunderstorm, and a mother was tucking her small son into bed. And she was about to turn off the light when the, the trembling voice from her son piped up, Mommy, will you stay with me all night? I'm scared. And mom smiled, and she walked back into the room and gave the young boy a, a reassuring hug, some, some compassionate pats on the back, and then said tenderly, I can't, dear. I have to go sleep in daddy's room. A long silence followed, and she moved to the door, moved away from the bed. And at last, the silence was broken by the shaky voice saying, that big sissy. <laughs> Daddy's scared, too. He, he needs mommy. Fear lurks here in the background of the book of Joshua. Will they be obedient or will they see these giants and tuck tail and run? Will the people of God obey the mission of God or will they be sidetracked by fear or disobedience or comforts? Well, God is so gracious that he doesn't just give them the command and then leave them to it. Grace upon grace upon grace is that he gives them an incredible promise. Look at verses 3 through 5. The incredible promise of God's presence. Look at verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, forward and to the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Yeah, Joshua, I've given you an incredible mission. It's a daunting task. And yes, it would even be impossible, except for the fact that I'm coming with you. 
I'm going to go before you. I will be with you. My presence will be with you just as I was with Moses. I'm going to be with you too, Joshua. And all that I've promised, all the way back to Abraham in in Genesis, I'll give to you. And here's how you'll know it will happen. Verse 5, I'll be with you. I'll never forsake you. And what about us, church? We've been given a mission too. We've seen this in the last few Sundays. As, as Nate preached last Sunday, and then we had Acts 1-8 the Sunday before that. Then we had Mark 16 the Sunday before that. This theme is coming up over and over in our preaching. This scene in Joshua, though, closely parallels a scene in which Jesus, the true and better Joshua, gives us our mission. We heard it in Mark 16. We call it the Great Commission. But I want to read it in Matthew 28 this morning because I want to see, us, see it in both. Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, many of you know it by heart, says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Look at these similarities here, church. Moses' departure, his death, Moses' departure left Joshua in charge of a great mission as an earthly leader. Jesus' ascension, just after these verses in Matthew that we just read, leaves the church on this earth with a great mission. Notice also there's some geographical transition that happens in both of them. With Joshua's commission, Israel is launched into crossing over and going into the land of Canaan. In Jesus' great commission, God is launching his people, originally, from Canaan into the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1.8. So in one sense, as the church today is fulfilling that great commission that God gave to the apostles, as the church today takes the gospel everywhere, our community and around the world, we extend God's commission to Joshua from Canaan to the entire world. We're still a part of this commission. So with Joshua, God said, cross, go over this river Jordan, go into this land that I've promised. Here, Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. Carry this promise, this blessing that I'm giving you to the entire world. But those are not the only similarities. Joshua 1.5, I point you back to the text, says this, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.9, if you skip down a few verses, says this, Don't be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Remind you of Matthew 28.20, what Jesus said to his disciples. He says this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oh, friend, revel in that promise. Rejoice this morning in that promise. That You know how you can be strong and courageous? The text has said this, or will say this, three times by God. And once from the people of God, as they echo it at the end of the text, be strong and courageous, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. You know how you can be strong and courageous in a daunting mission? Like crossing the Jordan into a land of giants, or in our context, going to your neighbor, going to your family member, going to Malaysia, going to Baltimore with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can go because you know that God is with you. His presence is promised. When the going gets tough, it's not that God will help you through it. It's that he's with you in it. There's great hope in that church. We're doing a D group uh, this semester with, with Chris and with Jonathan. And right now we're, we're working through a book by David Platt. And in our book this week we were reading a chapter that, man, I think he hits the nail on the head and perfectly summarizes what I'm thinking here in Joshua. And this is what David Platt says. How could Jesus, 
who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, throw such an enormous mission and burden on us? The answer is to consider who you're yoked to, who you're joined together with. Picture the imagery of two oxen placed under one yoke. Now picture yourself yoked with Jesus. Who wouldn't want that? Isn't it more of an honor than a burden? He goes on to say this. He says, when people say to me that I don't feel close to Jesus, I ask them if they're making disciples. After all, his promise to be with us is directly tied to his command to make disciples through us. Friends, we have a mission, and yes, it's daunting. Yes, there's going to be awkwardness. There may even be some persecution. But we have a promise that God, the God of the universe, is with us in this mission and will accomplish it. Yes, it's a hard mission. But here's the thing, friends. I'd rather have a hard mission with a good God than a fluffy life with a dead God. Praise be to God. He's paved the way. He's gone before us, and no man will stand in front of us. His gospel will conquer so the question for us, I think, we, I think we wrestle with this throughout Joshua, but, but I'll go ahead and give you the spoiler alert from the beginning. Did they do it? Did Israel do it? Did the people of Israel, led by Joshua, accomplish this stiff mission that God gave them? Verse 6, to be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. So did Israel inherit all that God said they would? No. They did. They did enjoy blessings of the land. They did enter into the land finally. They, they crossed the Jordan and entered the land, and there were some years of peace and freedom. They did enjoy the blessings of the land, the things that God promised them, like a, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was an agricultural uh, place for them to, to raise families. They enjoyed some of that. But look back at verse 4. In verse 4, you see this, this language, this wilderness in Lebanon as far as the great river Euphrates to the Hittites, the great sea toward the going down of the sun. All of this shall be your territory. What we see in verse 4 is this geographical description, the extent of the land, the scope of God's promised land. And it's a huge territory. It's a massive territory. It kind of reminds me of the scene from Lion King where you have Mufasa and Simba sitting on Pride Rock and they're having this conversation, father and son. And uh, the daddy lion says, uh, uh, everything the light touches is your kingdom. It will be your kingdom one day. It's kind of the the idea. You read verse 4. It's like everything in front of you. You look across the River Jordan and everything you see is going to be your land. It's yours. I've given it to you. But they didn't conquer that. They didn't, they didn't go in and, and press the boundaries of the conquest to these extents. John Calvin says in his commentary that they gave up. They didn't go as far as they could have, as much as God was willing to give them, because of comfort, compromise, and slothfulness, which is actually disbelief. They had enough land. They crossed over and they, they were enjoying the comforts of the land, the blessings of the land, and they, they got satisfied. And even though God commanded them to go further, they were okay, they were comfortable, and so they just, they just gave up on the mission. So what about us, church? What about our mission? Revelation 7 gives us a picture of our eternal promised land, our forever home, the kingdom that God is building for uh, His glory in, 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 in eternity. And around the throne, and around his throne in glory, we see this language in Revelation 7, is a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered, singing, worshiping before the Lord. The true and better Joshua, that's Jesus, will accomplish the mission where the Old Testament Joshua did not. Yes, he was a good leader. Christ is a better one. 
Yes, he led them to blessing. Christ leads us to a better one. And the question for me and you this morning is not whether it will happen. It will happen. But whether we'll be a part of it. Whether we'll be a part of this mission that God's called us to. Or will we, like Israel, be comfortable? Compromise? Because of slothfulness or disbelief? We have a living leader. We have a mission. And it's a tough one, but he's with us. Third point. We are a people with a book. We are a people with a a living leader. We are a people with a mission. Number three, we are a people with a book. Look at verses 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This phrase, strong and courageous, shows up four times in the chapter, three directly from God, one as a result of the people echoing what they've heard from God. And what you'll see in verse 7 and 8 is that strength and courage that Joshua is commanded to have multiple times, strength and courage are directly dependent upon careful, detailed obedience to the written word of God. I'm going to repeat that because I think there's some folks here this morning in this room that would say, I need some strength for what I'm going to face next week. I need, I need some courage for what I'm walking through in life right now. What we see in verses 7 and 8 is that strength and courage are directly dependent upon careful, detailed obedience to the written word of God. Joshua is to lead under the faithful authority of God's word. But notice what it looks like for Joshua. Look what it looks like to lead under the authority of God's word. Verse 7, don't deviate from it. The text says this, from to the right hand or to the left hand, don't deviate. You go right in the middle of what God has commanded to you clearly in his written word. Don't deviate from it. Verse 8. Don't depart from it. Don't depart from it. Don't leave it. Meditate on it day and night. This means for Joshua, there's never a moment as you're leading Israel, as you're leading the people of God, there's never a moment when when the decision is made that God's word, his written word is not in the driver's seat. It, It dictates, it guides, it leads you in every decision you make. Don't depart from it, Joshua. And then lastly, he says, don't don't let it depart from your mouth. And there's the idea here. It implies that this word should be read aloud. It's not enough for Moses just to read it to himself and to hear it and to know it for himself. But it should be read aloud to the people. It should be rehearsed. It should be remembered, meditated on, memorized. God's word is life for you, Joshua. It's life for your people. Don't depart from it. There's a correlation here in the text. Constant, careful absorbing of the word of God leads to obedience to it. A lack of study or ignoring the word of God results in a lack of obedience to it. Now, that's not a one-to-one correlation because if it were, that would mean that that scholars and people that study the Word of God eight hours a day, every day of their life, then they would be perfect. They would be obedient, right? There's not a one-to-one correlation here, but if we're honest with ourselves and if we think about our own lives and, and, and our stories, how God's been drawing us to himself, what we'll see is those times, those seasons of life where we're constantly in the Word, we're absorbing the Word of God, it leads to faithful obedience. And times when we, we don't make time for it, times when we, when we forget about it or even are cold to the word of God and, and ignore it, there tends to be more disobedience. We don't know what he's commanded of us. We're not walking in his word. So think about this, church. If this was the case for Joshua, 
If this was the case for Joshua leading Israel and he only had five of the 66 books of the Bible, how much more should this be the case for us as Christians who have the entire, complete, revealed word of God? He's given us everything we need. And yet in a world with so much tragedy, so much turmoil, so much brokenness, so much sinfulness, how much do we hear about the centrality of daily, disciplined, detailed obedience to all that God has said in his word? Instead, today, we hear people trying to minimize the Bible, calling it an outdated book, an an, an irrelevant book, archaic, domineering book that doesn't have any bearing on our lives. Friends, we, like Joshua, must live according to the book. Even in the church, there's this rising desire, rising quest for the bizarre, the unusual, dreams and visions and prophecies and church growth strategies that will say it's kind of an old hat, It's ineffective or out of date for our culture. Church of the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the way I understand that, the Bible is still the only thing that is effective in our culture. It doesn't expire. Without the word, there is no lasting faith. Without faith, there is no obedience. Without obedience, there is no fundamental change or gospel advance. We are a people of the book. There's no alternative to the word of God for truth, for authority, for our lives. Number four. Number four. We are a people with a people. We are a people with a people. Look at verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all of the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives you rest, gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. There's a lot going on in the latter part of this chapter and in this part of the text. We need a, a bit of backstory to understand what is happening here. Uh, And it really goes all the way back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, if you can remember that far back, if you were here at Poplar Spring then. The Israelites arrived at the eastern shore of the River Jordan. They had been wandering in the wilderness because of disobedience, because of distrust for 40 years. They had made their way to the River Jordan. The promised land is just on the other side. They can see it. They can smell it. They want it so badly. And it's there that Moses dies and Joshua becomes leader. And as they're on that bank looking at the, the promised land, uh, the, the, the land that they were on on the eastern side of the river also proved to be a beneficial land. It was a good land. It was a profitable land. It was good for grazing and livestock. And so the, 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 the two and a half tribes, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the, tribe, uh, the half, tribe, half of the tribe of Manasseh, they, they go to Moses and they request, hey, can we just settle here? We, we like this land on the eastern side of the river. It's good. You see that in Numbers chapter 21. Moses granted them permission to settle there as part of the the fulfillment of God's promise that we're about to go and enter the land, but this is going to be your portion. This can be your inheritance. Um, You can can establish yourself and your tribes here. 
if, and here's the little asterisk down at the bottom of the contract, right? If, when it comes time to cross the river and go into the land, if you'll join forces with the other tribes and go and fight with the rest of them so that they can have their inheritance, so that they can have their portion of the land west of the river. You see that in Numbers chapter 32. And so this is that recorded statement that Joshua is now bringing up. He's recalling, he's reminding them, remember what you promised to Moses. Remember what you promised before the Lord, that you would take this land, but you would go and help your brothers fight for theirs. Their families, their wives, and their little ones, the text says, their livestock could all stay back on the eastern side of the Jordan. But their fighting men, their men of valor, had to be committed to the mission. Well, look how they respond. You can imagine how you would respond. I can only imagine how I would respond. Look at verse 16. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command, commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. What they're saying is we'll do it. We'll do it, Joshua. Whatever you ask of us, wherever you send us, like we followed Moses, we'll follow you. Think about what they're saying here, church. Think about, think about what these words mean as they're saying this, as they're promising to go and fight on behalf of their brothers. Even if we die, even if we die and don't get to enjoy our inheritance, even as, as, as we cross the river, if we, if we die and never get to cash in on, on God's promise to us, even if I miss it, I'll do it so that you can have yours. I'll do it so that you can have yours. That's an incredible love for family, church. That's incredible sacrifice, incredible selflessness. Incredible unity. And they only have two conditions. You might think, well, yeah, I'd have some conditions too. And if I'm honest, I would have some conditions that would be something like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go and fight. Maybe we could stand in the back. Could our tribe kind of stand in the back of the battalion so that, so that as they come and approach us, maybe the archers' arrows can't reach us and they got to get through all those other tribes before they get to us. We'll just kind of stand here in the back. That's, that's kind of condition number one. Condition number two is that if this battle gets really bad, we kind of get to go back across the Jordan. I can swim pretty well, and so we'll just go back across the Jordan to our wives and kids and livestock and, and peacefulness. That's not their conditions. Look at their conditions. Verse 17. Only may the Lord your God be with you. And number two, verse 18. Only be strong and courageous. These were their two conditions. Joshua will follow you to our deaths. Even if that means we don't get to enjoy the inheritance that God has given us, we'll follow you to our deaths so that our entire family, so that all of God's people benefit. Why? Because we know God's fighting for you. We know God is on your side. If you'll be faithful, if you'll be obedient as Moses had before us, we'll follow you to our death. And think about that for us today as the church. Do we not, church, have a greater bond than these biological people, these geographical people that were following Joshua? We have a bond. We have been made into a people who were not a people by the shed blood of Christ. Going back to the the New Testament, to the true and better Joshua, Jesus himself said this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. On this rock, he's talking to his disciples. What rock is he talking about? This confession that Peter's made that you are the Son of God, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, on this rock, that confession, I will build my church. And then he says this next part. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has formed us into a church 
And his promise is that even the gates of hell will not have power over his church. The kingdom that he's building, the people of God that he's building and crafting and bringing into a forever family. Friends, you know how you can sacrifice like this for your brother and sister? You know how you can have this kind of mentality that you would put others before yourself, that you would sacrifice so that others can benefit? It's when you realize that the family that he's building is an eternal family. These temporal things are just that. They're just temporal. And they'll be gone one day. But he's building a family that will last forever. And he says, even the gates of hell, it, it will not prevail against the church. And so the study of Israel's unity reminds us of, yes, the, the global church that's all Christians of all times and all places. But there are takeaways here for us as a congregation, as a local church. I'm reminded of Paul in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a really messed up church. The Corinthian church was in a terrible place. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the bond of unity that God has called us into. That we feel things together. That we walk through things together. And this is the bond of unity that God is creating and crafting by the blood of his own son. Now, we don't follow Joshua chapter 1, verse 18, literally. You can look at your Bibles and see what that is. We don't kill people. We don't go in and, and, and execute people that are sowing disunity. But we should at least treat such division and divisiveness with the same kind of seriousness. That someone would, would, would be in the church sowing disunity, sowing discord, living like an unbeliever. That's why we take membership seriously. That's why we take church discipline serious. The unity of the family of God is its effectiveness to witness to the world. I mean, think, think about this. If we as Christians, if we as Christians globally or if we as Christians as Poplar Spring Baptist Church, if we bicker over silly little things, temporal things, whether it's in this room or whether it's on Facebook, if we're bickering over silly little temporal things, it tells the world that the eternal things that we profess have no actual weight in our lives because we'd rather talk about these silly little things. There's unity that God is creating. There's a bond that God is creating such that we would be willing to leverage our lives for our brothers and sisters. Leverage our lives so this gospel could get to future brothers and sisters. So as we come to a time to response, I want to make one thing really clear. You've heard me say it numerous times. But starting a new book like this, I want to, I want to establish something from the beginning. The point of this text and the point of the rest of Joshua is not for you to look at the text, not for you to look at Joshua and identify with Joshua, the hero of the text. Because in reality, he's not the hero of the text. He's a focal human figure in the text, but what we're going to see week after week is that God is the hero in the text. You see this with Jericho and I, two battles that go completely different because of God's presence or lack of presence. So what we see is God is the focal point. He's the hero of the text. And so the point is not for you to look at this book and see Joshua's example and think, man, I need to do better. I need to be a better leader. I need to have more faith. I need to be you know, a better leader in my home or in the church or in my community or at my work. The point is for you to look at Joshua and see one that was a true and better leader in Jesus who accomplished these things for you in the shed blood of Christ. That he came and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And yet he went to Calvary's hill and he died on a cross to pay our sin debt. A debt we couldn't pay. Because we couldn't be faithful enough. Because Joshua couldn't be faithful enough. And he's given us his words so that we can know this great truth. And he's brought us into a family so that we can celebrate this great truth. He's done it all. We just get to revel and rejoice in his greatness. 
as we confess our sins and repent and put our faith in what he's done for us. Praise God, he's made us a family. He's given us a glorious truth in his son and the death of Christ on the cross. And he's given us a difficult mission, but he's promised his presence even there. Praise be to God. Let's pray together.